Well, this morning, uh, you should have a handout maybe um, coming your way, if not already. I want to, uh, I want to speak this morning on, on, in fact, in all honesty, every time we get up and speak God's word, it really is a celebration of truth. So I have nothing better to share with you than I have any other time, but this is a little bit better. <laughs> Let me ask you, if someone told you that they have information that is a guaranteed investment for you, providing returns beyond your wild imaginations, would you want more information? Or would you immediately think skeptically and dismiss them? If somebody came to you and said, I have something that is guaranteed to work, you trust me in this. Guaranteed, and you will have returns beyond your wildest imaginations. Does that not pique a little interest in your mind as to what that is? See, I think that we don't properly understand sometimes the privilege we have as a messenger of the gospel. That every time we have opportunity to represent God's truth to people, that we are speaking into, the, into them the best news that ever could be spoken. When we think of the gospel message, understand the gospel means the good news. When we understand that everything that God instructs us to do or gives us warnings against are always, always, always for our benefit and our gain. If we would properly understand that, if that would settle into our hearts, then why would we ever have a problem with someone speaking the Word of God? Why would we ever come to a disagreement with what's being spoken if it's from the Bible? Maybe you don't. But I know there are many that are. I think the Word was given to us by Tony today that there is more and more people that are, are gathering around them messages that itch their itching ears rather than really hearing the Word of God. It's like someone getting upset with someone that wants to give you a million dollars, but he says, I'm going to give it to you if you do a few things so that you can enjoy it to the fullest. Things like, I want you to stay healthy. I want you to eat a good diet. I don't want you to take this money and buy junk food that you will buy that will you eat it and it will make you sick. I don't want you to waste this money by making foolish choices so that you will lose it. I want to make sure that you share this money with your closest friends so that they can enjoy it with you. I want to make sure that you invest it wisely so that you will enjoy more later. You see, if someone gave you a million dollars with that stipulations, would that be offensive to you? that they would give you guidance on how to use that million dollars to your benefit? Well, that's, the, that's exactly the type of message the Bible gives us. It's exactly what the Bible is doing for us every time we open it and read it. It is giving us messages how we are to properly use the blessings that God has given us so that we don't squander it, that we don't waste it, that we don't destroy ourselves, that every time he says don't, all he's saying is don't hurt yourself. All he's saying, when every time he says do, he's doing it so you can bring more blessings on yourself. That's what God's word is. And when we let the enemy come in and throw deception and throw lies at us and throw all kinds of other bad negative thoughts about the word of God, do you know who's losing? I am. You are. 
we are losing the benefit of trusting and listening to God's word for what it really is, and it's for our benefit. Always, always, always for my benefit. Never is God's word ever contrary to me. Never is it going to bring harm to me. Never is it going to hurt me. Never is it going to bring disgrace to me. It's always going to bless me. So when we have opportunity in church or when you have opportunity to share with your friends at, your, at work or wherever you're setting you're in, understand that you have the proper perspective of God's boldness to declare, to, de, to declare God's truth into their life because you're only doing something that benefits them. Understand that. Don't let the devil bring a shyness to you. Don't let the devil bring a, an embarrassment to you of God's word. Because God's word is truth, and truth sets people free. And if we're not willing and bold to declare God's truth, then we're not doing what's best for them or for yourself. The prophet Isaiah understood this in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. He said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That person is beautiful to you. You're beautiful to the people that you're bringing God's truth to. You're beautiful to them because you're bringing them good news. No place else in the world is that good news coming from if it doesn't come from the Bible and if it doesn't come through you. You're beautiful, and so are the people that proclaim the good news of Christ. That's exactly what I do every time I minister. That's exactly what you do every time you share the gospel with your friends. You're beautiful in the sight of God because you are declaring God's truths. Don't ever be ashamed of that. Don't ever apologize for that. So this morning... I'm going to speak to you as a messenger of the greatest financial planner in the universe, and that's God. The greatest financial planner you could ever speak with is wanting to speak to you this morning. And he has a plan, and his plan gives guaranteed returns that will blow your mind, not only as you live in this world, but for all eternity. Not only does he have a plan but he is the source of the guarantee as he is the creator of the wealth and of the blessings and everything associated with it. He not only says it's going to happen, but he makes it happen. Therefore, I stand here with all assurance that if you listen to this word today, that there is a plan that will bring fullness into your life and that you will not be disappointed in any way, shape, or form if you put this plan in place. Now, the plan I'm speaking about, yes, we often think about financial blessings, but see, God's riches and God's blessings are not always financial. Meaning that if I've, maybe you've given in the past, maybe you've tried it and it hasn't always worked out for you, thinking that I didn't, I gave, I, I gave in the offering, I gave my tithe, and, and you know what, I didn't get a big return on that investment. That doesn't mean that God isn't true to his word. Because understand that we've already established here in the last couple Sundays that money, wealth, is not the secret to happiness. Money is not the fulfillment of life. In fact, many times money brings griefs and added despair. So if money is not the secret to success, not the secret to happiness, why then do we think we have to limit God 
to return a blessing in money. Why do you think that if God says, I know the money may bring, bring more heartache to you, so why do you expect him to bring heartache by bringing you more money? Maybe, maybe the blessing that's coming to you is not financial. Do you still consider that to be a blessing? What about things that are more important than money or wealth? Things like peace of mind. Things like emotional stability. What about health and strength? What about good relationships with God and other people? See, there are many things that are more important than money. But unfortunately, sometimes we don't, we don't correlate them with God's blessing. I give money, therefore I think I've got to have money in return. Well, God says, folks, listen, don't limit me. Don't limit me with that. Because you're putting me in a small box. I am a big God, and I can offer you so much more if you'll just open up your heart and life to me to say, you know what, I will bless you the way I want to bless you, with true riches for today and for all eternity, if you will only trust me. So this morning, we're going to watch another video segment of the Randy Elkhorn's The Treasure Principle. And I know that um, some may have a little bit of a problem listening to a video on Sunday mornings, but I've got to tell you, this is really, really good information. The information that he's giving us, we're going to talk about tithing today. We're going to talk about tithing, but I, and, I'm, and I'm happy to do it. I, I, I am so excited about tithing because you know what? It unlocks the spiritual blessings in your life like, like nothing else can. Like nothing else can because tithing, first of all, let me tell you right now, God doesn't need your money but he needs your obedience. What better way to test our obedience than in the area of tithing? What better way to know are we really on board with God or not than the area of tithing? And that's maybe why it's such a test. Because this is a truth. This is a treasure principle that if we can glean it, if we can get it in our hearts and lives, I guarantee you results. In this chapter, we'll learn what the Lord tells us about an area that's a real struggle for many of us. And that's how much should we give? What you'll learn in this chapter can position you to experience real freedom and joy in your giving. Uh, I've often looked in the church and wondered as the offering plate went by how many times God says, you're robbing me, you're robbing me, you're robbing me. Only 3%, we're told, of Christians even tithe. And I think you ought to do more, a lot more than tithing. And so I'd say to any Christian brother that's not giving that you're missing one of the greatest aspects of walking with Jesus Christ that you'll ever experience in your life is to finally get self out of the way and be able to exalt him to others through your giving. Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. To everyone's amazement, Sam Houston, the colorful soldier and politician, came to Christ. After his baptism, Houston said he wanted to pay half the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, he responded, My pocketbook was baptized too. Like Sam Houston, you may understand that the Christian life is inseparable from giving. But you might be wondering, where do I start? The logical place is where God started his old covenant children. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The meaning of the word tithe is a tenth part. Ten percent was to be given back to God. 
There were free will offerings too, but the 10% was mandatory. And it's his anyway. <laughs> he gives it to us. He wants 10. That's, that's nothing. People miss the fact that there is so much tied into um, our obedience to God's principle of us tithing. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the firstfruits of all your crops. God's children give to Him first, not last. When His children weren't giving as they should, He said, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Jesus validated the mandatory tithe, even on small things. But there's no mention of tithing after the Gospels. It's neither commanded nor rescinded. And there's heated debate among Christians about whether tithing is still a starting place for giving. We may have mixed feelings on this issue. We should detest legalism, and we certainly don't want to try to pour new wine into old wineskins, imposing superseded First Covenant restrictions on Christians. Every New Testament example of giving goes far beyond the tithe. However, none falls short of it. There's a timeless truth behind the concept of giving God our first fruits. Whether or not the tithe is still the minimal measure of those first fruits, we should ask ourselves, does God expect His new covenant children to give less or more? Jesus raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. Maybe you believe exclusively in grace giving and disagree with the church fathers, Origen, Jerome, and Augustine, who taught that the tithe was the minimum giving requirement for Christians. But it seems fair to ask, God, do you really expect less of me than you demanded of the poorest Israelite? When I have your Holy Spirit living within me, and I live in the wealthiest society in human history, Nearly every study indicates that American Christians give on average between 2 and 3% of their incomes. A recent Barna Research report states, among born-again adults, there was a 44% rise in those who gave nothing last year. The mean per capita donation to churches dropped by 19% in just one year. One-third of born-again adults said they tithed but a comparison of their actual giving and household incomes reveals that only one-eighth actually did so. Isn't it troubling that in this wealthy society, grace giving amounts to a small fraction of the first covenant standard? Whatever we're teaching about giving today, either it's not true to scripture, the message isn't getting through, or we're being disobedient. The tithe is God's historical method to get us on the path of giving. In that sense, it can serve as a gateway to the joy of grace giving. It's unhealthy to view tithing as a place to stop, but it can still be a great place to start. Even under the first covenant, it wasn't a stopping place. Don't forget free will offerings. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's the starting blocks. Tithing can be the training wheels to launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace giving. Malachi says that the Israelites robbed God by withholding not only their mandatory tithes, but also their voluntary offerings. By giving less in their free will offerings than he expected of them, they were robbing God. If they could rob God with insufficient free will offerings, can't we do the same today? Paul encouraged voluntary giving. 
yet also describes such giving as obedience. God has expectations of us, even when our offerings are voluntary. To give less than He expects of us is to rob Him. Of course, God doesn't expect us all to give the same amount. God tells us in Deuteronomy that we're to give in proportion to how He's blessed us. Some say, we'll take this gradually. We're starting with 5%. But that's like saying, I used to rob six convenience stores a year. This year, by His grace, I'm going to only rob three. The point is not to rob God less. It's to not rob God at all. True, some would be sacrificing more by giving 5% of their income than others would be by tithing or even giving 50 or 90%. Certainly, the affluent should never check off the box as if giving 10% automatically fulfills their obligation. The 90% belongs to God, too. He doesn't look at just what we give. He also looks at what we keep. In the great majority of cases, givers mention tithing as the practice that first stretched them to give more. They tithed, and then they watched God provide. They saw their hearts move deeper into His kingdom. Now, years later, they're giving 60, 80, or even 95% of their income. But it was tithing that set them on the road to giving. When God's people were robbing Him by withholding tithes and offerings, He said, Test me in this, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Ironically, many people cannot afford to give because they're not giving. If we pay our debt to God first, then we will incur His blessing to help us pay our debts to men. But when we rob God to pay men, we rob ourselves of God's blessing. No wonder we don't have enough. It's a vicious cycle, and it takes obedient faith to break out of it. There's a guy that um, attended a presentation on debt that I did. And um, I started out telling him that one of the ways to get out of debt was to trust God and to tithe. And probably about a week after I had done the debt training class, um, I ran into him, and I asked him how things were going, and he told me that... Um, he had just gotten paid, he was already out of money, and he was going to have to go to one of these check cashing places two weeks in advance. And I said, um, did you tithe? And he said, no. And I said, well, you're already doomed. And he said, but I didn't have the money to tithe. And I said, let me tell you something. I said, when you trust God, when, when you give of yourself to the point that you can trust God and you allow Him to work everything else out, He will move in, in ways that you, you never even imagined that He can do. I said, but He can't do that because you are not at the level where you can trust Him yet. When people say they can't afford to tithe, it's worth asking. If your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? Chances are pretty good they'd say no, in which you could say, then you've admitted that you can afford to tithe. It's just that you don't want to. Now, we're not saying that it's easy to give. We're saying, and there are thousands who would agree, that it's much easier to live on 90% or 50% or 10% of your income inside the will of God than it is to live on 100% outside it. I believe we need to grow in our giving. Uh, I know that a lot of times you go to church and they talk about giving the 10%, which is good, and I think that's a start.
but I think we need to take it from the 10% and every year maybe increase it 2% to 12, then to 15, and just to keep growing. Uh, we hear of great men like R.G. Letourneau that are giving 90%, but I don't think they were giving 90% when they were 30 years old. It's a type of thing that we've got to grow in our life and our walk with God and grow in our giving. Tithing is like a toddler's first steps. They aren't his last or best steps, but they're a good start. Once you learn to ride a bike, you don't need the training wheels. Once you learn to give, tithing becomes irrelevant. And if you can ride the bike without ever using training wheels, good for you. We should have no problem with people who say, we're not under the tithe, just as long as they're not using that as a justification for giving less. Unfortunately, the current giving statistics among Christians clearly indicate most of us need a giving jump start. If you find a gateway to giving that's better than the tithe, wonderful. But if not, why not start where God started his first covenant children? Paul said, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Like piano playing, giving is a skill. With practice, we get better at it. We can learn to give more, give more often, and give more strategically. We teach the pursuit of excellence in our vocations. Why not make giving something we study, discuss, and sharpen, striving for excellence? The Macedonian believers gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. What does it mean to give beyond our ability? It means pushing our giving past the point where the figures add up. It means giving when the bottom line says we can't. Giving is a privilege to everybody. And even the widow was blessed by what she did. But that's true today. And so no matter how poor you are or how much you don't have, you can share with someone. And when you do, God is going to bless you. I mean, it's his promise. He's going to see that you don't go hungry. And that is, that's wonderful. Scott Lewis attended a conference where Bill Bright challenged people to give $1 million to help fulfill the Great Commission. This amount was laughable to Scott, far beyond anything he could imagine since his machinery business was generating an income of under $50,000 a year. Bill asked, how much did you give last year? Scott felt pretty good about his answer. We gave $17,000, about 35% of our income. Without blinking an eye, Bill responded, over the next year, why don't you make a goal of giving $50,000? Scott thought Bill hadn't understood. That was more than he had made all year. But Scott and his wife decided to trust God with Bill's challenge, asking him to do the impossible. God provided in amazing ways. With a miraculous December 31st provision, the Lewises were able to give the $50,000. The next year, they set a goal of giving $100,000. Again, God provided. Scott wrote a note saying that in 2001, they passed the $1 million mark in their giving. The best part is that they aren't stopping. That's what it means to excel at giving. Let's listen to one family that took on an amazing pledge to honor God in their giving. As a young man, I started early in the produce business, and everything was going so well for me. And then all of a sudden, things happened. And uh, I'd go to the office with Richard. And all I could do was cry because I could see all these stacks of losses coming into their office. No money. Instead of things getting better, they started getting worse. Uh, my business went down until one day I just went out of business. Just sad. I mean, my husband and I did a lot of crying because of our business that we lost. We worked 10 years of, of us together uh, to build up that business. I lost 
everything. Everything that, that, that I had worked for, that me and my wife had worked for for years, everything was gone. And then one day I went to church and I heard about tithing. Then my husband, um, you know, he has this big checkbook and wants me to write a, a check to the church for $50 because we didn't even have a penny in the checkbook. I took the challenge. Uh, I, I gave money uh, to the church without even having the money. And so um, I had a hard time dealing with tithing at church because I thought that everything that I earned was for my pocket. And, and there was a big challenge in the book of Malachi 3.8. And, and the challenge was that, uh, that he would remove the curse. In fact, that's what the Word of God says. And, and, and he, would make, he would pour out a blessing that I didn't have enough room to, to, to receive. And I said, well, you know, in my life I've tried everything else. And, and everything else that failed, I'm going to try God. And I can honestly tell you that we gave that check with no money in the bank. Uh, the Lord knows what happened. And ever since then, we've never lacked anything. God has blessed us, multiplied abundantly. Not only did he see me out of a, of a debt of $2,300,000 of and also 22 lawsuits, but also today to make us one of the outstanding corporations in the produce industry not only in this nation and the state but also uh, throughout the world people ask should i give now or should i hang on to it hoping my investments will do well and i'll have more to give in a year or two a good response would be two questions first how soon do you want to experience god's blessing and secondly do you want to be sure the money goes to God's kingdom, or are you willing to risk that it won't? When we stand before God, there's a good chance He's not going to say, You blew it when you gave me all that money before the stock market peaked. And if you're thinking, Well, I'll hold this and it'll increase in value, and then I'll be able to help more people, that's His job, not yours. All you do is do what He said. If someone's in need, you give. It's never wrong to give now. With 10,000% interest, God can produce far greater returns on money invested in heaven today than Wall Street or real estate ever can. If we don't give now, we run some real risks. The economy may change and we'll have less to give. God says we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Countless investors have been absolutely sure about getting great returns on money that disappears overnight. Our hearts may change and we may not follow through with giving. Zacchaeus said, here and now, I give my possessions. If you procrastinate, the same heart that's prompting you to give today may later persuade you not to. Why? Because a result of postponing giving, your heart's vested interests increase on earth and decrease in heaven. Our lives may end before we've given what we intended. You may think, no problem there. I'm putting my church and my ministries in my will. Well, by all means, do your estate planning and give heavily to God's kingdom. But what kind of trust does it take to part with your money once you die? You don't have any choice. Death isn't your best opportunity to give. It's the end of your opportunity to give. God rewards acts of faith done while we're still living. We also need to examine the present worthiness of any organization we give to. Randy agrees with financial advisor Ron Blue who says, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. John Wesley said, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. 
Wesley earned significant book royalties during his life. Yet his goal was to give so generously as to leave virtually nothing behind when he died. He achieved his goal. While it still had value, he traded in his confederate currency for treasures in heaven. When the Lord returns, what will happen to all the money sitting in bank accounts, retirement programs, estates, and foundations? It will burn like wood, hay, and straw when it could have been given in exchange for gold, silver, and precious stones. Money that could have been used to feed the hungry and fulfill the Great Commission will go up in smoke. Uh, in this day and age where everybody thinks you're supposed to get paid for whatever you do, uh, my motto is, if you're getting paid for everything, where's your ministry? From a personal experience, let me tell you what I think is the greatest joy about giving. It's when you give to somebody, when you bless somebody with your actions, your money, whatever it may be, knowing that that person has no way to ever repay you, that's when you're truly blessed. Have you ever played one of those card games where the winner is the one who runs out of cards first? At the end of the game, every card left counts against you. The American dream is to die with as many cards in your hand as possible. But maybe we have it backwards. Maybe our strategy should be like John Wesley's, to not get stuck with all those cards at life's end. He who dies with the most toys wins. We've seen that on bumper stickers. Well, let me tell you, when you die, your toys won't mean a thing. What about our children, you may ask? Aren't we supposed to leave them all our money? Well, the answer is no. Randy and Nancy Alcorn plan to leave their daughters only enough to be a modest assistance, but not enough to change their lifestyles or undercut their need to plan and pray with and depend on their husbands. They've communicated this, and they understand and agree with their plan to give most of their estate to God's kingdom. Leaving a large inheritance to children is not just a missed opportunity to invest in God's kingdom. It's also rarely in the children's best interests. We've all heard countless inheritance horror stories over the years. Study the lives of people who have inherited significant wealth, and you'll find that in the vast majority of cases, it's made them more unhappy, greedy, and cynical. Who needs to work hard when you've got all that money? Money funds new temptations, including addictions. Giving money to a careless spender is throwing gasoline on a fire. And nothing divides siblings more quickly than a large inheritance. Now, I don't care what this says. This is just a piece of paper. Leaving more to God's kingdom and less to financially independent children is not just an act of love toward God, but toward them. That's not good enough. In Old Testament times, leaving an inheritance was critical because children couldn't afford to buy their own land and could end up enslaved or unable to care for their parents. But today, inheritances are often windfalls coming to people who are financially independent and already have more than they need. Andrew Carnegie said, the almighty dollar bequeathed to a child is an almighty curse. No man has the right to handicap his son with such a burden as great as wealth. But we are to give as we've been given and we're supposed to do the best we can with it. We want to help people. That's the whole thing. The more you give, the more comes back to you because God is the greatest giver in the universe and he wouldn't let you outgive him. Go ahead and try. See what happens. R.G. Letourneau invented earth-moving machines. He gave away 90% of his income, but the money came in faster than he could give it away. Letourneau said, 
I shovel it out, and God shovels it back. But God has a bigger shovel. Health and wealth gospel dishonors Christ, since any gospel that is more true in America than China is not the true gospel. Prosperity theology is built on a half-truth. God often does prosper givers materially, but he won't let us treat him like a no-lose slot machine or a cosmic genie who does our bidding. Giving is a sacrifice, and sometimes we will feel that sacrifice. God's payoff is very real, but it comes at the proper times, which may not be today or tomorrow, but in eternity. God has given you considerable material blessings. Have you ever asked yourself, why has he provided so much? You don't need to wonder. Paul tells us exactly why he provides us with more money than we need. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that... So that what? How will he finish this sentence? Prosperity theology would finish it so that we might live in wealth, showing the world how much God blesses those who love him. But that is not how Paul finishes it. He says... You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Paul is relating the sixth and final key to the treasure principle. Treasure principle number six. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so we can find more ways to spend it. It's not so we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children. It's not so we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. It's so we can give generously. When God provides more money, we often think, this is a blessing. Well, yes, but it would be just as scriptural to think, this is a test. The money manager has legitimate needs, and the owner is generous. He didn't demand that his stewards live in poverty. And he doesn't resent our making reasonable expenditures on ourselves. But suppose the owner sees us living luxuriously in a mansion, driving only the best cars and flying first class, or buying only expensive clothes and electronic gadgets and eating at the finest restaurants. Isn't there a point when, as his stewards, we can cross the line of reasonable expenses? Won't the owner call us to account for squandering money that's not ours? We're called God's servants, and we're told it's required of us that we prove faithful. We're God's errand boys and delivery girls. We should keep that in mind when we set our salaries. Let's not have an inflated view of our own value. We don't own the store. We just work here. Suppose you have something important you want to get to someone who needs it. You wrap it up and hand it over to the delivery guy. What would you think if instead of delivering the package, he took it home, opened it up, and kept it for himself. You'd probably say, this guy doesn't get it. The package doesn't belong to him. He's just the middleman. His job is to get it from me to the person I want him to hand it off to. Just because God puts his money in our hands doesn't mean he intends for it to stay there. That's what Paul told the Corinthians, encouraging them to give to the needy in Jerusalem. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Why does God give some of his children more than they need and others less than they need? 
so that he may use his children to help one another. He doesn't want us to have too little or too much. When those with too much give to those with too little, two problems are solved. When they don't, two problems are perpetuated. God distributes wealth unevenly, not because he loves some of his children more than others, but so his children can distribute it to their brothers and sisters on his behalf. Paul said that the God who supplies seed to the sower will increase our store of seed. Why is that? So we can stockpile seed or eat it? No. So we can scatter it and spread it out that it might bear fruit. Abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's His provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with this money not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build His kingdom in heaven. Are you eager to plant God's money in the field of a world that needs Christ? Does the thought of giving to what will count for eternity make your spine tingle? Does storing up treasures in heaven make your heart leap? If we understood the out-of-this-world returns, we'd join the Macedonians and beg for the privilege of giving. Remember that $8.4 million lawsuit? The 10-year judgment period expired. Randy's ministry board said, Randy, you don't need to earn minimum wage anymore. You can start taking royalties again. Well, Randy and Nancy talked and prayed about it. They decided they didn't need a higher standard of living. They didn't need a better house or car. They didn't need a better retirement program or more insurance. So, with joy in their hearts, they said, no thanks. Later, they discovered the abortion clinic got the judgment extended for another 10 years. But Randy and Nancy were thankful they didn't know that when they made their decision. They're not their book royalties. They're God's book royalties. Randy and Nancy have a certain amount they live on, and they're comfortable. The rest goes to the kingdom. They don't need a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. They do fine on a lot less. God provides for them faithfully. And Randy and Nancy get to experience one of life's greatest thrills, the joy of giving. From a personal experience, let me tell you what I think is the greatest joy about giving. is when you give to somebody, when you bless somebody with your actions, your money, whatever it may be, knowing that that person has no way to ever repay you, that's when you're truly blessed. It's my prayer that you've already started on the road to giving. But if you haven't, Chapter 5 tells us how we can get started. Number 1. Begin by giving a tithe, or 10% of your income, to the church. There's a timeless truth to giving our first fruits. Jesus raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. Number 2. The tithe is God's historical method to get us on the path of giving. Tithing is not the ceiling to giving. It's the floor. Tithing is like the training wheels of giving that gets us started. Number three, giving is a skill that needs to be practiced often to get better at it. Number four, learn to give as much as you can give now instead of later. If you want the benefits of giving, you need to give. Number five, let God decide how much to provide for your adult children. Number six, 
The more you give, the more comes back to you because God is the greatest giver in the universe and he won't let you outgive him. And number seven, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. If you're doing this study in a small group, challenge each other in your giving. This is a great opportunity to experience the joy of giving and God's provision on a first-hand basis. Keep a journal so you can see how God is providing, answering prayers, and changing lives as you give. It will be a tremendous encouragement to you and to your friends. You know, I think what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to continue this next week. There's uh, really too much to go, and I don't want to belabor the point here. So um, I, I, I want you to know, first of all, that there are some things that are said in some of these videos and some things that may be um, pushing you beyond your current limits. And I don't want to do that. That's not my point. My point is I don't expect anybody to give 90% of your income. Jay Latorno did, but that was his, that was his call. Okay? The Lord made that call to him. But we are required to give to the Lord. There's no question about that. And, and, and I think what Randy said was very accurate. The Lord never, Jesus never lowered the standards of the Old Testament. He just raised them. He fulfilled them and then he raised them for us because we have much more today. And um, so I want to encourage you to do that. And, and again, this, this is not in any way, shape, or form a way to bring um, discouragement to people. It's a way, though, to bring encouragement and it's a way to bring in a, uh, to, to bring in blessings in your life. And it is the gateway it is the gateway to many things in your life. So where you're struggling, if you're struggling in areas today, I encourage you to go back and look at your giving pattern. Go back and are you obedient in every area of your life? Beginning there. Beginning there. And then let the Lord challenge you with those other areas because that's, that's faith. That's obedience. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I, I just thank you for what you're meaning to and what you're instructing us with. God, I pray that you would just continue to teach us in this area of such an important area of giving. And God, I, I just, that we would really grasp the fact that we just can never outgive you. And that doesn't just continue to mean so we can get more for ourselves. But God, that we really can begin to um, understand that the kingdom of heaven is not about me. It's not about what I have. It's about what I'm gaining for you and for those that need to hear the gospel so badly. Clearly the time is short. And help us to uh, gather that and help us to understand that principle. Help us to fulfill that in our hearts and lives and help us to be the beneficiary of your uh, financial and your health and your strength and your rewards that give not only for this day but for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.